If you're interested, feel free to tick that box and we'll make sure that we can provide that service to you. So in this session, we're going to be covering the Bible as a source of truth. And by way of introducing this topic, we're going to look at scripture as a piece of credible literature, a piece of credible literature. The Bible is an old book. How do we even know if what we have in our hands today is what was actually originally written back then? How do we know that the book hasn't been edited? How do we know if what we have is the genuine thing? So back in 1946, there were some Bedouin boys who were looking for lost goats along the Dead Sea. And there were a series of caves, and they thought, well, we'd rather not chase well, we'd rather not go into every single cave. And so they picked up rocks and they started throwing them into the caves. And um, one by one, they started throwing rocks in the caves. And all of a sudden, they heard this shattering sound. And as they walked into the cave, they found these massive jars with these large scrolls. And they really didn't know what to do with it. And so they just kept the scrolls for a little while. And then they thought, well, you know, there are lots of tourists that walk through the Bible lands. I wonder if somebody will pay for these. And so they started selling these Dead Sea Scrolls. And as they started circulating, they caught the attention of the academic world. And the academic world said, hey, these texts are very, very significant. And so um, from 1947 to 1956, they've been called the greatest manuscript discovery of modern times. The first scholars look at the material on the information, and they made different um, estimations. And what I mean by that is you can date a document based on what it's written on. So, for example, if I give you a document that's on a floppy disk versus a USB versus one of those really big floppy disks from, like, the late 80s, then you can kind of give, it gives you a frame of reference in terms of when that document was actually written. And so they looked at the papyrus that it was written on and they gave an estimate of what it was, uh, they gave an estimate of the date that the document was actually written. There's a second uh, bit of criteria that people use to um, gauge the time of the actual writing of uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and that is the language. Language develops in time. Vocabulary and the style of writing tells you when something was written. When I was in high school, my friend was reading through the original Sherlock Holmes books, and he gave me a challenge. He said, if you can read one paragraph and understand what it says, I'll think you're amazing. And so I was like, I can read Sherlock Holmes. And so I opened the book, and I read through one paragraph, and at the end of the paragraph, I had no idea what I had written. I needed a dictionary from the 1880s to actually understand what the author was actually saying. So in 1947, Dr. John C. Trevor of the American Schools of Oriental Research found that the writing in the Dead Sea Scrolls were similar to the oldest known biblical manuscripts, which are called the Nash Papyrus. And since then, the manuscripts have been translated. So in all, scholars have identified that the remains of about 825 to 870 separate scrolls exist. Fragments of every book of the Old Testament have been discovered except for the book of Esther. The Isaiah scroll, found relatively intact, is a thousand years older than any previously known copy of Isaiah. In fact, the scrolls are the oldest group of Old Testament manuscripts ever found. So if you want to learn more about the scrolls, uh, you can go to this website. 
Um, oh, excuse me. Before I go into that, these scrolls are kept safe in something called the Shrine of the Book. And you can't really tell, but in this middle section here, um, the Isaiah scroll is kept. And you can see a little lip and a little hole. And basically what they've done is because this is like the most valuable piece of manuscript to the Jewish religion and nation, what they've done is they've put this in a bomb-proof encasing. And if there's ever like a missile strike or a bomb strike, the whole Isaiah scroll goes into the ground and it's preserved and it can be saved through um, quite significant bombing apparently. And so pretty interesting factoid. Now, if you want to learn more about the Isaiah scroll, <laughs> and we're done. <laughs> Thank you for your time. <laughs> hey, just am I doing that? Like, am I just okay? Whatever. <laughs> um, you can go to what the Bible says about dot com, and there's a little uh, tab where there's a video called Belief, and you can watch a video. And um, the interviewer actually talks to the curator of the Shrine of the Book. It's a really, really interesting video, and it's not too long. I think it's about 15 minutes long. So in terms of what we have in our hands today, the Dead Sea Scrolls show that indeed it is accurate to what was originally written. And that really supports the credibility of the literature side of the Bible. Now, what about the Bible as a historical book? For years, skeptics claimed that the Bible really highlights this character named King David. And for years, there was just no sign of King David anywhere in any archaeological findings. And Philip R. Davies was kind of the main proponent of this argument. And he basically said, neither Israel, the kingdom of Israel, nor David are historical entities. There's no trace of the Bible's David or Solomon. And basically, he says, from the argue of silence, that proves that the Bible is fictitious. Well, what happened is... In 1993, in Tel Dan, there was a fragment that was found in this town in northern Israel. And that's what the fragment looked like. And scholars kind of started deciphering some of the wording. And a dramatic find confirmed the historicity of David, king of Israel. A team of archaeologists digging in northern Galilee found a remarkable inscription from the 9th century BC that refers both to the house of David and the king of Israel. And so this was published in the uh, archaeological journals, and this is quite a significant find. Then there was the Moabite stone. Time magazine writes from December 18, 1995, The skeptics claim that King David never existed is now hard to defend. Last year, the French scholar André Lemaire reported a related House of David discovery in Biblical Archaeology Review. His subject was the Mesha steel, also known as the Moabite stone the most extensive inscription ever recovered from an ancient Palestine. Found in 1868 at the ruins of biblical Dibon and later fractured, the basalt stone wound up in the Louvre where Lemaire spent seven years studying it. His conclusion, the phrase House of David appears there as well. As with the Tel Dan fragment, this inscription comes from an enemy of Israel boasting of a victory. King Mesha of Moab, who figured in the Bible... Lemaire had to reconstruct a missing letter to decode the wording, but if he's right, there's now, there are now two 9th century references to David's dynasty. 
So my intention in sharing this, it isn't so much to show, uh, it isn't so much to prove the whole Bible, but rather just to show compelling evidence that can help confirm faith in portions of scripture. And what it does is it just allows us to say, yeah, there are good reasons why we can trust the Bible. So we spent a little bit of time as a we've spent a little bit of time on the Bible as a document of truth, but I want to change gears now and talk about what the Bible actually says about truth. And to introduce this, uh, I want to do a little bit of a visual experiment with you. This is called the lilac chaser. And so what I'm going to ask you to do, or let me explain to you what the lilac chaser is first. Um, there are lilac dots in the shape of a circle, and at set intervals. One lilac dot disappears and turns gray. As you can see, it's in the top corner. And as Ben has pressed play, um, it's starting to disappear in set intervals. Now, what I want you to do is stare at the plus sign and don't blink. Stare at the plus sign and don't blink. And here's what should happen. The gray color dot will turn green. And one by one, those dots are going to disappear. Pretty cool, huh? Now, I want you to know the dots don't actually disappear. And the dots don't actually change color either. So if you follow the gray dot as it replaces or as it disappears, and don't stare at the, the cross or the plus sign, just kind of follow the gray dot, you'll end up seeing what's actually happening, and your brain kind of switches. But if you go back and you stare at the plus sign again, then once again, the dot's going to change color, it'll turn green, and one by one, the dots will disappear. Every single time you do it, your brain will trick you. And so what I really want to highlight in this illustration is that the actions that you practice influences your perception of reality. The actions that you practice influences your perception of reality. Your actions determine what you see. The question is, how do you know you're doing the right thing? And so the Bible here is going to talk about how to experience truth. What actions need to be taken in order for you to be able to see and experience God? So what I first want to do is talk about what the Bible says in terms of an attitude of truth, an attitude of seeking truth. If you have your Bibles, there's some white Bibles next to you. I'm going to invite you to turn to John chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 16 to 21. Oh, thanks, Ben. John chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 16 to 21. And Jesus here kind of gives this short teaching on what it means to experience truth, the attitude we are supposed to have as we seek truth. John chapter 3, looking at verses 16 to 21, and I'm just going to read this portion of scripture here. Uh, for those of you who have your white Bibles, it's page 854, page 854. <clears throat> Here's what it says. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son, that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. 
There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it, for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light, so others can see that they are doing what God wants. From this text, in summary, it says, Walking in darkness is walking in condemnation. It's about hiding and deception. And in contrast, those who walk in light, they aren't necessarily those who are right or righteous or perfect. It's just they're those who want to seek after God. They're open to transparency. Rather than hiding away and keeping their own agenda, they're willing to bring their agendas before God and saying, God, you shed light on this. You tell me if this is right or not. The difference between light and darkness is a willingness to be open and transparent. Those who walk in truth are open to correction. They are seeking that which is right. They're willing to let go of their own interests. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus gives this definition of truth. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. An accurate understanding of God comes through knowing Jesus. And an encounter with God is possible because of Jesus. There's this example in the Bible that's given of an individual who finds truth. And I think there are a lot of really important nuggets that can be gleaned from this story. So if you have your Bibles again, I'm going to invite you to go to John chapter 9. And we're going to look at verses 1 to 38. John chapter 9, verses 1 to 38. And we're not going to read through all of the story, but we will look at significant portions of the story. And uh, I'll invite you to just scan through and read through the story as I narrate bits of it to you. But we'll start and read the first seven verses. Here's how the story goes. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent us. The night is coming and then no one can work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. Then he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. He told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. So here's a story of Jesus restoring the sight to someone who is blind. And probably the blaring question is Jesus' response when the disciples ask Hey, whose fault is it? Why is this guy blind? Is it his fault or his parents' fault? And Jesus gives this mysterious answer. We're going to talk about it a little bit more in the next session, so I'm just going to bypass that for now. But what I want to highlight is the fact that Jesus claimed to be light, he claimed to be truth, and he restores the physical sight to this 
a man who is born blind. But not only that, the implications are that he restores the spiritual sight to this man who is born blind. Now, the method of healing sounds a little bit peculiar. Jesus kind of, I imagine he kind of had to gather some saliva in his mouth, spit on the ground, and make some mud. Now, that's generally not something that I would want a doctor to do if I kind of had an ailment. I would think that it would make my sight worse. But um, a little bit of historical background. Back in the day, there were miracle workers or healers, and their saliva was seen as something that was quite medicinal. And so Jesus is kind of going with the customs of the day, and he's trying to show this man, hey, you can trust in what I'm doing. And so he kind of follows this custom. He spits on the ground. Now, the second ingredient is also quite important in this story. Jesus mixes his saliva with dusts from the ground. And the reason why that's significant is because it's almost this nod to creation where God creates man from the dust of the ground. And here in this story, Jesus recreates and restores this man from the dust of the ground. So he uses something that the man can identify with as healing, and then he uses a symbol to kind of hint to the audience, I'm more than just a miracle worker. And so he gives this nod back to creation where God creates. So this man, he goes to the pool of Siloam and he washes at the pool of Siloam and his sight is restored. Now, I can't imagine what it's like for someone who's blind to get their sight back. I remember uh, being younger and not having glasses and sitting next to my dad and both of us were sitting in front of the TV and we were quite close to the screen and um, both of us had our heads kind of forward and we were both squinting and my dad looked at me and he was offended because he thought I was making fun of him and then he found out that my eyesight is just as bad as his is. <laughs> he was like, okay, it's time to get glasses. <laughs> And I remember getting glasses and being able to see the board at school. I remember being able to see people's faces clearly. It was, com- it was like a complete new way of experiencing life. And you know today, if I don't have my glasses and I hop in the car, I'm a massive liability on the road. Like once you go glass, once you get clear vision, you just cannot go back. And here's this man who was born blind and he's able to see the world for the first time. Now, the people who knew the man, they didn't know what to do. The religious leaders, those who were in positions of influence, they didn't know what to do. Who has the power to restore the sight to the blind? And the answer is Jesus does. And on this point, this is where the story shifts from a time of celebration and it becomes a time of controversy. And so the influential leaders, they kind of sit the blind man down and they begin to interrogate him. They didn't want to acknowledge the claims of Jesus. And what would be the implications of Jesus actually being who he said he was? What are the implications of Jesus being a divine God who has power to heal and restore the sight to the blind? It means those who are in positions of influence would have to listen to Jesus. It means they would have to believe in Jesus. They'd have to submit to Jesus. They would lose their own personal influence. The blind man was interrogated. They questioned the legitimacy of the healing. Hey, is this really real? 
Were you really blind before you met Jesus? Then they questioned the character of Jesus. Hey, do you know what kind of a man Jesus actually is? He's considered a sinner and outcast. They cast doubt on Jesus' teachings and his character. But I love verse 25. Notice how the man responds. Verse 25, page 862. The man replies, I don't know whether he is a sinner, the man replied, but I know this. I was blind and now I see. The decision is made and the man is ostracized from the community as the story goes. But when Jesus hears about this, he goes to the man and bef- and, and, and before he brought physical sight to this man, and now he's going to bring spiritual sight to this man. If you look at verses 35 to 38, verse 35 to 38, notice what, this, or notice what the Bible says here. When Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man and asked, do you believe in the son of man? The man answered, who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. You have seen him, Jesus said, and he is speaking to you. Yes, Lord, I believe, the man said, and he worshipped Jesus. There are several lessons that we can learn about truth from this story, and I'm just going to kind of go over them in a rapid succession. Truth is discovered in practice and action, not just mental contemplation. Think about what this blind man went through. If he didn't actually listen to the command of Jesus to go wash in the pool of Siloam, his sight would not have been restored, and he wouldn't have come to the knowledge of Christ. So truth is experienced by action. Here's the second lesson on truth. Truth is best revealed in a relationship with Christ. This man did not know who Jesus was before he was healed. And even after he was healed, he didn't know who Jesus was. It took Jesus finding him and telling him, I'm the one who healed you. And as this man spent time with Jesus, he came to the conclusion, you are the son of God. Truth is experienced in a connection and a relationship with Christ. I love the reality of this story. It's, it shows how truth is a gradual thing. You come to the knowledge of truth gradually. This man experienced immediately uh, immediate physical restoration, but when it came to spiritual knowledge, it took a second visit from Jesus. And the reality is, for each and every one of us, truth is an ongoing journey where we're going to be learning for the rest of our lives what is truth. It's not something that you come to the knowledge of instantaneously. I love in this story how the truth sets this blind man free, and it revealed his true potential. This man was born blind. He was destined to be a beggar his whole life. But as he encountered Christ, his whole life changed. He re- his sight was restored to him. He came in contact with the Savior, and it unlocked his potential. And what we see happening is this man witnessing to his whole community. That connection to truth, that connection to Christ gave him a purpose. The final observation of truth. Truth allows you to perceive the world differently. The man encountered Jesus and his understanding of Jesus changed his whole life. There's one verse that I'd like you to go to. We're in John chapter 10. 
I'd like you to go to John chapter 3, and we're going to look at verse 3 together. John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus is talking to this man named Nicodemus. And he kind of gives this cryptic phrase where he says, you need to be born again if you want to enter into heaven. And the beginning or the introduction to that conversation starts in verse 3. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Notice here in this passage, the kingdom of God, it's a perceptual reality. It's something that you're able to see. As you connect with Christ, as who he is changes who you are, it changes your perception of reality. Truth gives that perceptual lens that allows you to see what God is doing. That perception is revealed in belief of the identity and character of Jesus. Jesus. 